0: As a husband, there's a lot of words that you want to hear come out of your wife's mouth from time to time. Some of those that come to mind are, I love you. I'm thankful for you. It looks like you've lost some weight. These are the words that you you want to hear come out of your wife's mouth. But one you never want to hear is, I don't think we're going to make it. And just to be clear, Those weren't Celeste's words to me, so no need to have a conversation with me after this. Those were the words of Kathy Keller, who is the wife of a PCA pastor, Tim Keller, in New York City. And her exact words were, I don't think we're going to make it if we don't start praying. You see, it was the fall of 2001. She was in the throes of her Crohn's disease, just the ongoing effects of that. He had just been diagnosed with thyroid cancer and we all know what, kind of, what happened in the fall of 2001 in New York City. They were trying to minister to their congregation and to the city of New York in the midst of 9-11 and all the trauma that brought on all those people. And so with all that bearing down on them, Kathy looked at Tim and she said, if we don't start praying together, I don't think we're going to make it. She wasn't talking about their marriage. She was talking about their ministry, their life, their vitality they desperately needed to learn how to pray and that's what Jesus is telling us this morning too this morning Jesus has brought us to that same exact point in his famous Sermon on the Mount we started this series on the Sermon on the Mount way back last August and throughout we've heard constantly the high demands of Christ's discipleship this what this is what it looks like to be Christ's followers in this world We've heard things like, our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. We've heard that we have to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. We've heard that our anger is like murder and our lust is like adultery. And last week, we got to the really pleasant text that Mark preached for us, that we shouldn't judge anybody. We should look as much at our own sin as we do other people. And all along this way, Jesus has been leading his disciples to this point of realization. You are not going to make it without prayer. So the question for us this morning is, if we're not going to make it without prayer, how in the world do we pray? Well, we're going to have to learn how to ask. So three lessons about prayer this morning from Jesus. The problem of prayer, the promise of prayer, and the person of prayer. Now I'll go through those one, on, one by one, starting out, the problem of prayer. You see at the start of this passage, Jesus lays out a very simple definition of prayer. You see it there in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Ask, seek, and knock. And many have wondered here, is Jesus describing some special formula for prayer? Is this how we're to pray this progression Like a child who asks his parents for something and then not getting what he wants, he then seeks after his parents again and again. And then when not finding them, he knocks on the door over and over again to see if his parents are on the other side. There might be some of that happening here. But seek and knock were common metaphors in Jewish teaching for prayer. So more than three separate commands, Jesus is not telling us to do three separate things. He is emphasizing one command repeated in three different ways. Seeking and knocking are just a further metaphor for asking. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus wants us to know fundamentally, what is prayer? At its bare root, what, what do we do when we pray? And Jesus said it is asking. Throughout the Gospels, if you read them, Jesus' favorite word to associate with prayer is to ask. In fact, that's his favorite word in these five verses. He uses it five times. And with that one word, with that one word definition of prayer, to ask, we start to understand why we have such a problem with prayer. Why don't we like to pray? Well, we don't like to ask. Look again at those three terms that Jesus uses ask, seek, and knock. These are all commands from Jesus, but they're commands to be needy. <laughs> to ask implies that we don't have an answer. To seek implies that we haven't found what we're looking for. To knock implies that we don't have access to something we desperately need. And it gets even harder for us because these words in the original Greek are present tense, meaning that Jesus is asking us to do this continually, not just to ask once but to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking. You see, prayer is not just being in need once. All of us can be in need once. Prayer is constantly seeing how much need you have. Prayer is constant helplessness. And that's why we don't like to pray. That's the problem of prayer. Most people think a lack of prayer is just a lack of discipline. I need better habits, better time management, better formulas, better practices. I need to try a little harder. But our lack of prayer does not start with a lack of discipline. It starts with a lack of desperation. We do not like being needy. We hate sometimes asking for help. That's exactly where Jesus wants us to go in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us through the Sermon on the Mount to see how helpless we truly are. It's funny, but in the late 80s, there was an English teacher, when you could still do this, I guess, in the late 80s, there was an English teacher at Texas A&M named Virginia Owens. And she would make her freshman English class every year read through the Sermon on the Mount. She wanted them to read through it and then write their response to it. It didn't have to be long, but just some response to what you thought about the Sermon on the Mount. And she expected, being in Texas in the 80s, being in the Bible Belt, she would get some pretty thoughtful responses to the Sermon on the Mount. Something good about Jesus, something good about Christianity, something thoughtful about piety and the nature of all these things. But what she received was very, very angry responses from all her freshmen. Let me read a couple of them for us this morning. Here's the first one. I did not like the essay on the Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect and nobody is. Here's what the second one said. I don't even know what to say to this. Churches actually preach this stuff is extremely strict, and this allows for no fun whatsoever. Here's the last one. The things asked in this sermon are absolutely absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, this is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I've ever heard in my life. And it's kind of comical to think about a freshman in college telling Jesus, the greatest teacher of all time, he's extremely stupid and absurd. It's a, the honesty is a little bit refreshing. But it's interesting to think about, why did just a simple reading of the Sermon on the Mount cause such visceral anger from these college students? They were just being honest about what it did to them. You see, if you read the Sermon on the Mount with fresh eyes, it forces you into helplessness. You start thinking, if this is the standard for what Christ expects in the world then where am I at in that standard? If this is what Christ calls right, then I'm in the wrong. And if we're honest this morning with the Sermon on the Mount, if we, if we take a look at it with fresh eyes, it will do the same for us as well. Do you remember back last August how the Sermon on the Mount first started? Matthew 5, 3 with the Beatitudes, the very first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones that have deep need So the first step this morning in learning how to pray is not to get more discipline. That can help down the road, but the first step is to get more desperate. And that's really dangerous for us this morning because we live in a very prosperous nation in very prosperous times. So we don't have to ask for a lot of things. And that's why we so need the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is God's grace to us to show you how desperate you truly are. Because as you read through it over and over again, you realize, I cannot accomplish any of this in my flesh. I'm going to have to ask for help. And that's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. So the first thing we must learn about prayer is prayer is about asking, and to ask we have to see our need. That's the problem. Now let's look at the promise. Even though we naturally don't like to ask, why should we ask? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be Opened. Notice here in these verses, Jesus does not speak about probability. This might happen, this could happen. He speaks with absolute certainty. And if that isn't enough, he repeats it again in verse 8 in an even stronger way to help us get his point. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And with that verse, we have both the most comforting promise in all of scripture and the most confusing promise in all Scripture. It is so comforting to hear in verse 8 that Jesus doesn't just ask us to pray, but promises us that God hears our prayers. But it is so confusing to read that verse because our prayers oftentimes feel like they go unanswered, don't they? So here's the question. What do you do with all of Jesus' promises about prayer? Because this isn't the first time He said things like this. John 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, if you abide in me, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. John 16, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So Jesus promises us that he will give us what we ask for. But I'm looking out at you all this morning, and I know a lot of you all. I know a lot of you have asked. You've asked not just once or twice, but you've asked for years. And you still haven't received what you've been asking for. So, what do you do? What do you do with these promises? When you ask for good things like protection, but you still receive a bad diagnosis? When you ask for things like a child or a spouse and still find yourself lonely? What do you do when you ask for kingdom minded things? Like the salvation of a lost parent or the salvation of a lost child, and there doesn't seem to be anything going on in their heart at all. What happens when you pray and pray and pray for things to get better and things end up getting worse? Is God a liar in those moments? Is our faith just too weak? We're not asking in the right ways. How do you line up Jesus' promises of prayer with all these problems we face in our life? Well, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't explain our problem. He enters into our problem. Jesus is not just a great teacher on prayer. He is the great prayer. When Jesus came, he came praying. Prayer was always on the lips of our Savior. And Robert mentioned this a couple weeks ago in his sermon on anxiety. But in Jesus' prayer in the garden, the night before he was betrayed, when he was asking, he was seeking, he was knocking, he lives out all of our questions. He calls upon the Father that night, and he says, Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup from me. And God the Father does not answer yes. And I don't think there's a person here this morning that's upset with God for not answering yes. We're so thankful for that no, because in that no to Jesus' prayer, the Father was saying yes to our redemption. Through that no, Jesus gives us our salvation. So I don't want you to wipe away God's promises of prayer this morning. It's so easy to just wipe them away so it doesn't hurt. It's so easy to qualify them. Well, he doesn't really mean this. But like Jesus, we also have to surrender to the fact that God knows the story better than us. He knows what we need, and he is obligated as our Father to give what's best, even when the best might seem unthinkable to us. So how does this work itself out in real life? How do the promises of God meet our problems in real life? I'll share a quick story on this. It's not going to answer every single one of your questions, but it might give some helpful perspective. Paul Miller has wrote a really good book called The Praying Life, and I highly recommend it to you for for issues on this. But he writes in that book about a story about when him and his wife were pregnant with their daughter Kim. And when they got pregnant, they started praying almost immediately, Psalm 121. God, please protect our daughter from all harm. They prayed at night when they went to bed. They prayed in the morning when they got up. They would pray it over and over, asking, seeking, knocking, God, protect our daughter Kim from all harm. Well, when Kim was born, everything went wrong. The doctor did not show up. There was lots of complications. And Kim was born not being able to breathe. She was extremely blue all over. They ran some test scores. All of them came back low. And the Millers were trouble beyond belief. They had prayed that God would keep Kim from harm, but now they were holding a severely harmed child. They later found out, that Kim was disabled in so many different ways. And here's what Paul Miller said. He said, in that moment, the promise of God actually made things worse because now it hurt to hope in that promise. Well, fast forward 20 years later, the story keeps going on, and the Miller family is doing a family devotional around their dinner table, and lo and behold, they come to Psalm 121. And Paul at that moment looked up from the table and he said, God did it. God did Psalm 121. He he kept us from all harm. What do you mean? Here's what Paul Miller said At that time, we thought the greatest harm was a daughter with disability, but this was nothing compared to the harm of two proud parents. Over the last 20 years, no one has brought Jesus into our home more than our daughter, Kim. Because she is often helpless, She has taught us what it means to be helpless too. So what do you do with the promises of prayer that Jesus gives us in this passage? You do what Jesus tells you to do. You ask for them. You plead with him. You beg him. You seek. You knock. Do not throw away God's promises of prayer this morning. This isn't prosperity theology. We know our God is not a genie that will just give us whatever we want, but we do know our God is a father Who loves to give his children what they need. So, this week, take those promises of God and beat the door down. But as you're doing it, remember asking is not demanding. God has never promised to keep bad things from happening to us. And we know that because of Jesus. He did not keep bad things from happening to himself. So, we pray these promises like Jesus prayed them in the garden. We ask, we seek. But we surrender, knowing that God is our Father and He will give us what's good. So how do we know that? How do we ultimately trust that God is for our good? Well, let's finish there now. We've looked at the problem of prayer. We've seen the promises of prayer. Now let's finish by looking at the person of prayer. Who are you going to when you pray? Look back at verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and this is the key, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Notice here, at the end of this passage, Jesus' emphasis is no longer on prayer, it's on our Father. Because that's the key. That's the key, not just to this passage, but the whole Sermon on the Mount. The silver lining, the thread going through the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been bringing up over and over again, is remember your Father in heaven. Because who you're asking when you go to him in prayer is your Father. Oftentimes we can get so caught up in the asking, we we can forget who we're asking. And he uses that lesser to greater argument to show how great our Father is. He says, he's comparing human fathers who are evil, which what he means there, who are sinful, to our heavenly father who is perfect. So just take me as an example. I haven't won a father of the year award yet. I make lots of mistakes. I drop my kids off late to school. I can get overly frustrated. I can oftentimes be too busy and distracted with other things. But Lydia and Joshua and now Caleb know if they come to me asking me for bread, I'm not going to give them a stone. And they know if they come asking me for fish, I'm not going to give them a snake. And I'm sinful. I struggle. But I also spent all weekend trying to figure out fun things for us to do on fall break. Because I love giving good gifts to my children. And what Jesus says here is one of the most remarkable things in all of Scripture. Do not miss this. Here's what he says. There hasn't been a parent on this earth who wants good for his children as much as God the Father wants good for you. Add up all the good that all the parents want to do throughout all the earth. It doesn't come close to how much God the Father wants good for you. So why don't we ask? Well, Jesus says we don't know who we're asking. Because if we knew he was our Father, we would ask. And what Jesus is bringing out here is so subtle, but it's so important. Not just for your prayers, but for your entire life. At first reading of this passage, when you just breeze through it, you say, this is kind of silly, this illustration that Jesus uses. Of course, any decent father wouldn't substitute stone for bread. They wouldn't give snake instead of a fish. But you need to know, Jesus is actually saying more than that. You see, during, during that time around the Sea of Galilee, the stones actually did look like bread. There were these big round stones that were brown around the sea, and they did look like big, round loaves of bread. And some of the fish in that sea, they weren't just fish like we, we, we see fish. They were more like eel-like catfish. And they had these scales that sort of resembled snakes. So for a father to give his child stone instead of bread would not just be a silly mistake. It would be deceitful. That father would be trying to trick and deceive their child. And what Jesus is doing here is he's tracing our problems with prayer all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what Satan did for us, the father of lies. In that garden, he tricked. He substituted stone for bread. And he lied. He gave us snakes instead of fish. And do you remember what that lie was? The root of that temptation? He told us, you can't really trust God because God doesn't really care about you. Even though God had given them everything, he had created them, every tree in the garden is yours except one. And Satan used that one to convince them that God is not after your good. And he held out that bread and when Adam and Eve bit down, they found nothing but rock. And Jesus doesn't want us to make the same mistake this morning. C.S. Lewis, at the end of his life, he faced an extreme amount of grief following the death of his wife, Joy. He had a hard time processing that, understanding that. He had written about pain and suffering from a theoretical standpoint, but now he was experiencing it. He didn't know what to do with it. So he wrote a book called Grief Observed, trying to figure out where he was at with God, with faith. And he wrote this. He said, the chief danger most of us face is not to stop believing in God, but to start believing dreadful things about him. Is that you? Most of our chief danger in here is not to stop believing in God altogether, but it's to slowly and subtly over time, as prayers go seemingly unanswered, as sin remains, as suffering gets hard, we'll start to believe dreadful things about God will start to believe the lie in the garden that God is not trustworthy because he does not care about me. And once that goes into the heart, you won't pray. It poisons everything. So here's the application for us this week from this passage. Like Jesus, I really want you to ask. But I know you won't ask if you're not convinced of the Father's love. So thankfully for us, it's exactly why Jesus came, didn't he? That's why he's been talking about the whole summer of the Mount. He's trying to show you this is what the Father is like. We talk a lot about the cross in this church because the cross is the manifest, manifestation of that love. We talk a lot about how Jesus accomplished our salvation there. But we sometimes don't talk about why Jesus is there in the first place. Why is he up on that cross? Why did he come? Yes, of course, because of our sin. But you know Jesus wasn't acting alone there, don't you? The Father sent him to the cross because of his great love for us and his desire to rescue us from that sin. Jesus came to reveal the Father. So what this means and what has to go deep down in your heart so you'll want to ask is that Jesus didn't die to convince the Father to love you. Jesus died because the Father loved you. Jesus isn't on the cross trying to persuade some angry God to finally come around. Jesus is on the cross expressing the Father's deep love for his children. Jesus tells us in our passage that God who from all eternity is Father has acted now to become your Father. How has he done that? He's given us everything. He's given us his Son to save us. He's given us a spirit now to be with us, to sanctify us, to care for us, to comfort us. What is the source of all this? The Father. It's the Father's love that goes all the way with us. So this week, will you ask him? As you think about your week, as you think about all these questions you have and struggles and problems and temptations and suffering and anything else that might come up this week, would you go to him? knowing that he has opened up his heart to you so you really can open up your heart to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, convince us again of your great love for us. Convince us again of where you're at with us and open up our hearts to you. Lord, help us to give everything back to you. Lord, starting in this meal, show us in this meal your love expressed for us in the sending of your Son and the Spirit that's now with us. It's in Christ's name, amen.